Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm David Leary. And I'm Blake Oliver. And Blake, we are here at AICPA CIMA Engage 2023, recording live in the Earmark and QuickFee mobile recording studio. So great to be here. It's very exciting. And we want to do interviews, and I do like I always do. I go to the speaker pages of the conference, and I just look for people that have some interesting talk or background. So this episode is going to be about wine and art. Unfortunately, the guest that's going to speak about wine, he had a, a flight issue, and he's oh, going to no. show up tomorrow. So we're going to do okay. two parts, but it'll all be in one episode. So if you're listening to this, it's one episode, but for us, it'll be two interviews. So um, we're talking about art. We're talking about art first. We're going to talk about that. And we have Colleen Boyle. She's the managing director and head of national sales and philanthropic strategy of the Fine Art Group. And her talk that she did at ASPA is Taxes, Tools, Tactics, Tips for Managing Art, Jewelry, and Valuable Collections. Ooh. And I was like, oh, this could be, I don't know what this is, but it sounds more exciting than, you know, the rest of the sessions. Well, I have been, I've been hearing a lot of ads recently about uh, how collecting art is a great way to invest, and there's now these different apps and services that allow you to invest fractionally in art. I'm, I'm curious to know if that's something we're going to talk about today, if that's something, Colleen, that yeah. you... And welcome to the show, with. Colleen. Welcome. Well, thank yeah. you, and thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's talk a little bit about the art market. And yeah. um, actually, in today's discussion, I'd like to extend beyond art. We like to talk about art with a capital A. And we really see not only just art, but we see art and jewelry and sports memorabilia and other types of asset classes that individuals own or they're looking to enter from the standpoint of an investment, just to balance a portfolio or to diversify a portfolio. And we're finding that these types of assets tend to be uh, growing in value if acquired appropriately. So the one thing to keep in mind in the art market is that it is an unregulated market. And so it's very, very important that individuals that are looking to acquire not only just art, but maybe collector cars, or wine, or jewelry, or men's luxury watches, or even Hermes handbags, that they become educated and that they undertake due diligence. If you think about buying a piece of real estate, think of everything that you do prior to making the purchase you have inspections, you look at the comparables in the marketplace to understand whether or not you're getting a good value. You undertake a series of due diligence practices. You hire a professional to help you, you on the purchase. You hire professionals in all different areas. The same should apply to anyone who's looking to acquire these assets for investment. A lot of people will acquire these assets just for sheer pleasure. as. Maybe they like a specific aesthetic and the color schemes match the colors in their living room. That's a different approach than acquiring for investment. So if you're talking about investment, you really wanna make sure that you do execute a certain set of due diligence practices. Because not only is it unregulated, there are also a lot of fakes in the marketplace. And it's something that is very, very prevalent, that is a buyer beware scenario. So I'm a CPA and I've got clients that are interested, high net worth individuals Mm -hmm. who are interested 
in investing in wine, rare wines, or musical instruments, or mm-hmm. artworks. Um, what can I do? You know, I'm not an art expert. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, an expert at, at these things. Like, how, how do I protect my clients? What's mm-hmm. the best way to do that? So the first thing is to really understand if your client is working with a professional. Just like your client has hired you as the CPA to manage their tax situation, the same applies in these asset classes to make sure that the client is working with a professional who understands the market, who understands the mission of the client, who understands also really talking through not only just on the acquisition side, but what is really the final potential disposition? Because all collectors are different. So in some cases, some collectors may be starting collections really for enjoyment. They've always wanted to own a few Ferraris, drive around the tracks, go to the car shows. It's really experiential. It's a passion. And then they realize, ooh, and I want to also own some Porsches. Ooh, okay, now I want to buy a McLaren. And and that that's usually what happens is you start with one or two and then your passion and your knowledge increases and you continue and you build a collection. But you want to build wisely. So at the end of the day, if you have a collection of 20 cars, what are you going to do from the standpoint of ultimate disposition? Do you have heirs that are interested in those vehicles? Are you thinking about possibly selling eventually? Have they appreciated in value? And as a result, you're going to have a capital gain scenario. The same would apply to artwork. A lot of people are looking now to um, enter into really the post-war and contemporary space, which is where we're seeing most of the activity, and it's global. It's global demand. We're finding, again, if clients acquire wisely and they don't overpay, which most clients will tend to pay premium because they're not educated and they're not going through the due diligence practice, then it's harder to actually increase in value if you're already paying at a premium at your cost basis. What's the So one of the objectives in your talk was the the difference between um, price and value. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So if you think about the price of something compared to the value of something, so the price is what somebody's willing to pay. So in an unregulated market, what does that mean? That means the price can be set at any benchmark, okay? If you go to open market as an auction, the strategy there is you start with a low estimate. It only takes two bidders to bid against each other to drive that price up. Just because something sells for a significant amount of money doesn't necessarily mean that's what it's worth. It just means two people really wanted it. And in some cases, we'll pay more than market to get it. So that's the challenge. And that's where the due diligence comes in because it can get quite competitive if you're in a bidding situation at auction. So oftentimes when we're working with clients, we'll bid on behalf of the client. We'll set the parameters. We'll recommend you really shouldn't be paying above this threshold for this piece of artwork or for this piece of jewelry if you want to stay within the market. Mm. So so with the, the value the value price, not the price, the emotional price, the exactly. value price is something that you kind of level set of like, uh, I, across a big enough sample set, here's probably what it would go for versus the two people that are in a bidding Exactly. Market. Got it. Exactly. Okay. And you're acting as an intermediary to take a little bit of the pressure off to... Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it, it again, it's emotional. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been 
to an auction or have seen a, you know the bidding process. Well, it's not a fine art auction, okay. but like a school auction. Yeah. You know, right. and it's, there's art there. It can, it, 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 there's art maybe by children, right. but it can be emotional. Exactly. And uh, yeah, you might overpay for for something. Yes, yeah. it can happen. I assume the same principles are at work. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it really has to do with the intention of the buyer. And if the buyer's intention is to buy for investment, it's a different set of strategies than just buying because it's something that you're going to enjoy. So a couple of things to think about when you're buying for investment. Obviously, not overpaying, not paying premium. That's the first. Second, it's just even the strategy of how is it structured? Are you going to set up an LLC? Or are you going to position the, say, for example, a lot of artwork is stored in Delaware? from the standpoint of a, of a tax benefit. And That's a question there. I want to dig mm -hmm. into is like, do you, I mean, some of these artworks are incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. Do you set up an LLC for each one? Do you collect them like in a group? Yes, yeah, so it depends on, it really depends on the overall financial structure of the individual. Um, I am not a tax specialist, but what we tend to see with our clients, usually they'll have um, at least one, if not more than one LLC. It could be, it could be, differentiated by the type of artwork. So maybe all the post-war and contemporaries in one LLC and maybe the American artwork is in another LLC. It could be by period of acquisition. It just depends on how the LLCs are structured. And, and it's really up to the client and up to the tax specialist to figure out the best structure from a tax efficiency perspective. But we are seeing from an investment perspective people storing more than hanging on the wall. So it tends to oftentimes go into storage, we'll sit in storage, or possibly go on exhibition. If a piece can get in a significant exhibition, sometimes that can actually enhance the, the, the provenance of a piece, the history of the piece, the storyline of the piece. Um, that's always helpful as far as thinking of an overall strategy on maintaining and improving the value of an object. And so what does your firm actually do then for clients? Mm -hmm. Do you, you said you uh, go to auctions and you bid. Do you do the research? Do you mm -hmm. uh, verify and issue certificates? Like we guarantee this is an authentic item? Mm -hmm. or is it all of the above? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. So the Fine Art Group, we are the largest independent global firm of appraisers and advisors that specialize in non-cash passion assets that include art, jewelry, cars, coins, firearms, wine. I mean, the list is fairly significant what clients own. We are truly the best in class. Our specialists are all very knowledgeable, many of them former Sotheby's and Christie's specialists. And basically what we bring to the client is a fiduciary perspective. So we have five primary services that we're able to offer to clients. We, are, we do a lot of valuations um, and we can help a client whether it's an IRS valuation that they might need, maybe they're donating an object or there's an estate settlement, or maybe they just wanna have objects insured from a risk management perspective to make sure that they're covered in case anything happens to the object. We're very active in the, what we call advisory space, helping clients to build collections. Often, oftentimes clients are not knowledgeable about this space. We bring a lot of education in the process, really understand the client's interests, their mission, are there multiple family members that might be involved in the process and helping them to build a collection wisely from an investment, usually an investment perspective. And that's when we'll go to bid on behalf of the client. But we do the same, same thing on the sell side. So when it comes to selling, many people do not know how to sell a collection. 
We do the same thing from the standpoint as positioning ourselves as the fiduciary and making sure that the object is sold or objects are sold at the most appropriate venue, at the right estimates. We negotiate all the fees. We make sure it's positioned correctly online in the catalog. We also look at the market conditions. Is this the best time to sell? Should it sell in New York? Should it sell in Geneva? Should it sell in Hong Kong? Should it sell in London? All of those factors make a difference. And then we also um, are very involved with lending. So we have a lending platform for art and jewelry for people who are looking to collateralize their collections and need some liquidity or maybe want to buy more objects. They can leverage their existing collection. And then we also have um, investment opportunities where we'll help clients to build from the standpoint of investments, whether it's a, a group of people coming together because they want to buy a couple pieces of artwork, set up the LLC, hold it for three to five years, and then monetize it. Um, there's all different structures that are involved from the standpoint of, in of investment. How did you get into this world <laughs> of, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I gotta say, I'm like picturing like James Bond, you know, it's like, <laughs> That kind of like... There's no podcasters hanging people around. People with yeah. monocles, you know, like fine wines. Like, how did you get into this yeah. world of, you know, this rarefied world of art? And so it's an interesting... So my background's actually finance. So I studied economics undergrad at the College of William & Mary, and I was in the financial field for many, many years. I had the opportunity to move to Paris, France, and I had the opportunity to pursue my passion, which was art and collectibles. So I got a degree from Christie's in Paris. I speak French. And then I was looking to be able to blend my passion with my financial background. Um, and that is how I entered into this particular arena. So I started off as an appraiser and then moved into more of a business development role and now working really uh, doing a lot more in the philanthropic space. So what we're finding, and you'll see if you watch the auctions, more and more high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, they're very philanthropic. They want to give back. And they're using these types of assets as a means to do so. You're going to see more and more single owner sales with all the proceeds either going to the foundation being allocated out to various charities or directly being allocated to charities of choice. And so we're getting involved with that process, working with the multi-generational families, particularly next gen, who may not be interested in grandma's jewelry, but might have an, a specific cause they want to support. So how can they use grandma's jewelry to support that cause? And we work to help them figure out that strategy, that approach, the sales strategy. And does that include strategies around like capital gains and taxes and all these types so of things? So we're not tax specialists, but we, we do valuations. So if we understand what the cost basis is, we're able to provide a fair market valuation that would indicate whether or not there's any type of capital gain situation. And that's really going to direct the strategy, you know, from the standpoint of is there a capital gain strategy, then you might want to execute plan A. If there's no capital gains situation, then you might want to execute plan B. It, it does help. I mean, obviously, most clients are concerned about tax issues and minimizing any type of tax situation. So that's always part of the equation. But we work with clients, advisors, tax specialists, tax attorneys, wealth advisors. Really, it's a collaborative approach. We're coming in as the specialist in the area of these passion assets to provide information on value and the current market situation. Do you have a favorite type of passion asset, personally? Uh -oh. oh, I see so much. 
Um, I'd have to say, if I had to pick two, I really love the art space. I, I'm, I'm enamored not only by artists who, you know, who have passed and are substantially art world, but also current artists who are, who are producing and the messaging that they're, they're providing. And I love the visual imagery. Um, but I also am passionate about, about wine, which is why I wanted okay. to meet the, the wine specialist. I'm, I love the, the burgundies. I, I'm, a, I'm a burgundy, white and red, well, Pinot, Pinot and Chardonnay fan. So particularly living in France for seven years, I got the, the chance to spend a lot of time uh, learning about wine. And you and your firm started getting to, you know, all these NFTs and digital assets mm -hmm. and digital collectibles, like, is, is that, like, is it a scam? Is it real? Are people overpaying for that? Is it to the market? You just, is it too variable? Like, what's your, where your, yeah, what's your so, two cents on that? So, you know, the NFT market, particularly a year ago, was really the talk because you saw these astronomical results at auction. And that drives individuals to want to enter a marketplace when all of a sudden you start seeing significant returns. NFTs are very similar to any other type of speculative investment, and that's what it is. It's speculative. So what do you need to be aware of? So first of all, how does the IRS categorize an NFT? Is it a collectible? Is it a security? Again, how is that regulated from the standpoint of ownership? Who actually owns the image? And if you actually look at legal cases, which there are a lot of legal issues right now, a lot of the legal issues are around who owns that particular image. So that's another thing you have to keep in mind. If you take a look statistically at the average value of an NFT and the whole time of an NFT, it's more of a flipped product, if that makes sense. You're in, you're out, you don't hold on to it necessarily for a very long time. Um, the space that is probably going to be the most interesting in the NFT arena is looking at artists. So definitely some of the living artists have entered into that space. It's very interesting to watch, as well as your athletes and celebrities. That would be the other space to watch in the NFT market. It's not necessarily going away. If anything, it has definitely been subdued. <laughs> um, but it's it's something to be aware of. And like any other asset, we always recommend, even in our space, we always recommend clients considering no more than say seven to ten percent of their overall portfolio in that particular asset category. The same would apply to anything digital. You just don't want to be too heavy in anything. And if you're a speculative investor, it's fine. Knowing that you can possibly make some money, but also knowing you could possibly not. Yeah. So as long as you go in with that mindset, you're fine. And I'd say the same thing on the investment side. You know, when you're looking at art or jewelry or wine or cars, again, if you if you have the right guidance, you can do well. But that's not always the case. Markets change, tastes change, global economies change, desires change. So you really have to be aware of those changes and understand when the exit strategy should apply. And is this a just a game for the ultra wealthy and the ultra rich or is there a place here for accountants who may not have the budget but have an interest in collecting something that could be valuable in this absolutely i mean that's the beauty of this space if you look at again across the board all different asset class categories 
you'll find you can definitely enter. You don't need to spend a million dollars in order for it to be an investment. We find in the art space, um, looking at what we call the multiples, so lithographs that have limited editions, that's a great way. A lot of times collectors will start in that space. And again, if you're buying smart, that can appreciate over time. And then oftentimes that could get monetized and you move up into the category. Um, the same would apply to other asset classes as well. It, you know, you, you find your entry mark. The return won't be obviously as grand as buying something at a higher value, which is why we're seeing a little bit more collaboration around acquisition, where you'll see maybe three people set up, you know, um, a, a joint scenario where they'll go in collaboratively to acquire something. That makes sense. Well, Colleen, thank you for joining us here. Uh, it's I love having things we don't know anything about. It's nice not to talk about running an accounting firm sometimes or accounting and tax and learning about fine art. It's a, it's a whole new world for us, and I do appreciate you joining us in the Cloud Accounting Podcast oh, today. good. Well, thank you. And if our listeners want to follow you and learn more about what you and your firm do, where should they go? Sure. www.fineartgroup.com. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you. Okay. Blake. Remember yesterday we recorded the first half of this podcast and it was about art. And my promise was I wanted art and wine. Well, now the best we, combination. The best combination. Now we get to talk about wine and we have a tall, I'm going to mess up your last name, Tuwari. I nailed it. Perfect. Thank you. He's the CEO of Cult Wines Americas. When I, if I'm going to scroll through a speaker page, I see Cult Wines Americas. They're coming on the podcast. Cult Wines. We, we have discussed how accounting firms can sometimes be like cults. So... <laughs> This is an accounting podcast, Cult Wines. What's the name for? Like, why? Why call it Cult Wines? Nice, nice tie-in. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, right. Well, we call ourselves Cult Wines Investments. Um, as you know, there are some iconic wines and uh, they're referred to as Cult Wines. So if, you, okay. if you're a fan of California uh, wines, you know, you got Harlan, you've got Screaming Eagle. Those would be called Cult Wines. And so that's the uh, genesis uh, of our name. So people collect these wines. They're obsessed with these wines. I mean, are like what vintages are we talking about here when we talk about California cult wines? Well, yeah. So we're we're essentially an asset manager. So we're the world's largest fine wine asset manager. We have about three hundred and sixty million dollars in uh, assets under management. And so when you say assets under management, like physical, like you store them, like physical bottles, bottles of wine. Of wine. Okay. Correct. They are physical. Uh, and say cases, that number again. Three hundred and sixty million dollars worth. So these so, are these are physical I, I'm trying cases. Trying to wrap my head around that. How number much? Right. <laughs> how much is three hundred and sixty million dollars worth of wine? Like how much space does that take up? It's about a million and a half bottles, and uh, we have storage facilities with a third party in the UK called London City Bond, and there we have twenty four thousand square feet, and we've just taken more in an old uh, World War Two bomb shelter that London City Bond is converting to wine storage called Drake Low Tunnels. So we have room to expand by about a factor of five or six from that 25,000 square feet. So you buy the wine, you ship it all to London, and you store it in a bomb shelter. Yeah, basically. Um, the, uh, the wine actually, um, when you look at fine wine investing, traditionally it has been a European thing. And so our allocation uh, to clients, the benchmark allocation, it, it's about 80% French wines 
10% Italian wines. And then the remaining 10% gets split up amongst uh, the rest of the world, including the United States. And so most of our wine is acquired in Europe and shipped to in-bond warehousing through London City Bond in the UK. And that yeah. also allows us access to the deepest and most liquid market when we go to exit positions. What does in-bond mean? So in-bond is a system whereby you can move goods within uh, essentially the EU and the UK from location to location without having to pay the VAT tax. Uh, so accountants will be very familiar with that. It's 20%. So if you purchase uh, wine in France, you can move it from France to an in-bond warehouse in the UK without having to pay the 20% VAT tax on that purchase. So long as the wine stays in bond, it does not attract that VAT tax. When it's taken out, it attracts that tax and, it, and the tax gets paid by whomever takes it out of the, the storage. And does it come out of storage? How long do you hold on to this wine? It, uh, it will. Um, so because of the way our client accounts are structured, if you came on board with us, you would get a what we call a segregated, separately managed account a fine wine and you own it. So under specific un bottles or cases. Cases, or yep. And so under UK law, it is segregated and ring fenced and it's identified as your wine. So you own it. We actively manage that for you. But at any time, if you said, hey, uh, that 2000, that case of 2000 Lafitte has been in storage for a while, uh, I'd rather take possession of it and enjoy it with my friends and family. Uh, uh, you know, don't sell it. I'll, I'll take it. And we'll help you uh, take delivery of mm. it. Well, so sorry, I just got to dig into this more, David. No, I, I'm <laughs> trying to my, what's the conception I'm going. I'm confused about or whatever. So I'm filthy rich, and I have artwork that I don't look at because that kind of stays in bond in a warehouse <laughs> in a warehouse. And, and I got airport. wine I'm not drinking that stays under in a bomb shelter. <laughs> I'm like, like, what's the point of being rich? I don't know. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Well, you, so you said people do, Eventually you know, consume it. Um, do you have a breakdown of yeah. how many are doing it just purely as an investment versus yeah. how many About are? About 85% of our wine is investment wine. So we will sell that for clients and reinvest proceeds. Or if they take money off the table, they can do that. About 15% um, clients will say, don't sell it. I want to enjoy that mm. and, and we'll help them get possession of it. And when you sell it, how do you do that? Do you have like a website? Do you put it up for auction? Like, how does it get offloaded? Yeah. So we have um, 3,300 uh, clients around the world. And so our first thing is we've got a closed system. So if you were overweight Bordeaux and somebody was uh, underweight Bordeaux, you know, we can uh, match the trade that way. Uh, secondly, we have a broad network of traders um, commodity traders in Hong Kong. We have a network of merchants that we've worked with that have been around for hundreds of years um, that we go to, as well as uh, what they call the um, uh, the on trade, which would be restaurants and and others. If if you know if um, if the wine is uh, iconic enough, the other thing we will do if if none of those are suitable, we will sell the wine through uh, what is essentially a stock exchange for fine wine called LiveX. And LiveX was created in London in the year 2000. There's about 600 professional members, so individuals can't join. We're members, but professionals around the world who are buying and selling these wines all day, every day. So they're making a market in the wine. So we can go there to, to sell. 
we generally do not sell at auction because the commission fees are too high. Mm. They could be 20%, 30%, and that eats into returns. Got it. So uh, do you have do you partner with CPAs, such as myself, who are advisors to our clients um, or you know, investment advisors? Like, How do you acquire, how do you get your customers? Yeah, um, for the most part, the company has been built on a D2C basis, and so it's very hands-on. It's very one-to-one. Um, and at certain levels of investment, you get a dedicated portfolio manager. Do you have minimums? We, we do. Um, so the minimum investment is $10,000. Okay. Um, at $35,000, you get a portfolio manager. So at, at that point, you have a lot more One-to-one relationship. Correct. So is it yep. a, am I the one who's saying, I'd like you to go acquire these wines, or am I just giving you ten grand? you're just going and get me a portfolio? Yeah, for the most part, it's the latter, where um, just like any other asset manager, uh, once a prospective investor is comfortable with who we are, our track record, um, our uh, uh, ability to perform and uh, 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 match the, the client's goals to their objectives, they'll essentially usually say, here, over to you, um, use your discretion and, and please manage it to, uh, as you usually do. What's the return on this type of investment? Historically, I know you can't predict a future return, but I imagine <laughs> yeah. it must be pretty good if you've amassed 300 and something million of assets. Yes. Uh, so we've been in business since 2007. So we've got a 15-ish year uh, track record, 16 coming up. Um, so returns have been solid, uh, obviously with variability from year to year, but um, essentially a, a client would expect historically uh, 10 to 12 percent uh, annual returns. Um, and to give you an indication, over the last couple of years, uh, our average um, return last year was 13 percent and the year before was about 17 percent. That's not too uh, shabby. Not bad compared yeah. to the S&P last year, yeah. which was down 18 percent. So it was, it was a, a year where we, you know, fine wine did what it was supposed to do. And how does Colt Wines earn its fee? So we uh, charge a management fee. Um, and percentage, uh, percentage, uh, correct. And depending on what tier your account level is at, it, it, um, it ratchets down. So when you come in, it's 2.95% and at the highest level is 2%. So, so what's your background? You're not an accountant. I'm not. You're a lawyer. I am. Was, was a lawyer. <laughs> now, are you like, like, did you get in this cause you're a wine lover or you're a business person? Like, yeah. So, um, I'm a former lawyer. I like to say a okay. reformed lawyer, um, uh, and, uh, was, was in the corporate and securities world. Um, from there I moved on to asset management and, uh, was an executive with a large Canadian global bank. Um, uh, and from there I was uh, recruited by Vanguard to, um, start up Vanguard investments in Canada. They were looking to start uh, in Canada. I had a lot of experience with ETFs. Um, so I did that for almost eight years. Um, and then after being at Vanguard, I mean, the natural place to go would be fine wine asset management. I mean, it just goes together so well, doesn't it? Uh, but, uh, all kidding aside, um, I, I, I do, I have a passion for fine wine. Um, I knew it was, uh, a recognized asset class in Europe and Asia, not so much in North America. Um, so with my uh, business partner, we did some research, built a business plan, found out Colt Wines was the best in the world, and we approached them about um, 
growing the business uh, throughout um, uh, the Americas. So that's how it all worked out. Um, my wife is also pretty passionate about wine and, and ran um, uh, the fine wine department of Richie's Auction House. So as a, as a family, I can say family because we have our boys nose wine. They're not old enough to drink it yet, but we'll have them nose it. And, you know, invariably they'll say peaches. Uh, our younger one will say dinosaur bones because he likes dinosaurs. dinosaurs. And, you know, sometimes he's right. <laughs> so, it. yeah. It's uh, amazing. So with how do you reconcile people? Because I think wine people are very obsessive about wine. Like I've seen some of these movies and documentaries and like when people are just like, I just want to buy it and treat it as an asset. I'm never going to actually appreciate it. Does that like emotionally drive you a little crazy? Yeah, that's a very good question, David. Um, you know, it is a bit, um, uh, th there is some controversy around it, uh, as you say, amongst, you know, some fine wine um, aficionados. Um, now, I would consider myself generally to be one of those as well. So for me, I separate two parts of my brain. One is the the enjoyment of drinking wine part, and the other is my investing part. Um, and so, you know, we do have a cellar ourselves. We enjoy fine wine. Um, obviously, I have an account at uh, Cult Wines, and I like looking at the returns on that. So, you know, for me, I'm able to separate the two. Um, but, you know, to be honest, there are a few friends of mine from the uh, Confrérie de Chevalier. It's the, the Burgundy uh, wine group of, of which I'm a member, uh, who would say, you know, gosh, I'd never buy wine for an investment. It's meant for me to drink or my friends and family to drink. So, you know, I think you can do both. So Blake and I live in the desert. We're both in Arizona. And now let's say it's not really a great place for me to store my wines. How do I get them into the cellar in Actually, England? The problem you have as a wine lover in Arizona is you can only buy wine a few months out of the year because right. if you try to ship it, right. it gets ruined in transit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, th and that is an issue. Um, so we'll do that for you. So back to our allocation, again, with arguably a little over 90% being... Um, uh, European wines, they wouldn't have far to travel. Um, any sort of Californian or Chilean wines, we would only ship in um, appropriate weather with refrigeration uh, to the warehouses in London. Um, so that's that's how we would do it. Um, we don't store a lot of wine in the U.S. And um, there's a, a reason for that. And that is, again, as I mentioned, most of the wine world uh, in terms of um, investments, the liquidity is through the London markets traditionally. Hong Kong's a number two market. Has that changed with Brexit at all? It, it hasn't really changed much, no. Um, and, and there was a period where it became a lot more difficult with forms and getting the transportation organized when they were figuring all that out during the uh, uh, beginning of Brexit, let's call it. But it's, it's a lot smoother now. And of course, that also coincided with with the pandemic. And so there were supply chain issues. There were all these forms that people didn't know what to do with. And so there was a bit of a bottleneck on transport, but that's been cleared down. So if let's say there's a senior firm partners that are making a lot of money with their big accounting firm and they want to start investing in wines, like how do they do this? What's the first step? Contact us. Um, and so you can uh, go to our website, uh, cultwines.com. Um, you can request a consultation and we'll set up a, a meeting and we can talk about your objectives and how we can help you. Um, and then we, we take it from there. 
Amazing. Thank you very much for joining us. It's very interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me, David. Blake. Cool. It was uh, nice to chat. <laughs>